0: Hey friends, welcome to Sexistential You, the school of sexistentialism. The only way out is through. Just a heads up, this podcast discusses sex and sexuality from a pleasure-centered perspective. So please be aware of the audience with you. I'm Rachel Klitschewski.
1: And I'm Janice Luna. We're both sex therapists and educators dedicated to bringing you the sex ed that you deserve.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are speaking about patriarchy and toxic masculinity. This Mm -hmm. is a two-part episode. I'm Rachel Klochevsky. And I'm Janice Luna. And so we're going to start. So Janice, do you have any memories of, like, early memories of patriarchy that you can recall?
1: Yeah. um, (laughs) I remember, well, not something that I directly remember, but when I was in pre-K, I had a crush on a boy, and I felt like I had to, like, prove that I was a cool person, I guess, by, like, showing him how strong my muscles are. Mm. And I, like, punched him on the arm, and I was like, see, like, I'm strong, too. Like, boys aren't the only ones who are strong. Um, oh and I wow. was maybe three or four. That's
0: adorable. You know, I didn't think about my memory yet, but it totally reminds me of kindergarten too, mm-hmm. where there was the class bully and I totally had a crush on him and I couldn't figure out because he like treated everybody like shit and yeah. he specifically like targeted girls. Yeah. And I was like, yes, I'm into this kid. Yeah. What? <laughs>
1: yeah. It's it's a little scary how, how young that starts.
0: Right. Um, I'm actually really proud of my daughter who's 5 mm-hmm. Um, because I had learned that there was a boy that kept trying to kiss her friend, Mm -hmm. and he was like being really aggressive about it. And my daughter was just like, she said no. And she took her friend's hand and just walked away. She was like so peaceful about it. And like, they're all still friends. And he learned not to continue pursuing girls that say no. Yeah. I was like, look at my daughter. Yeah. Look at that. Look what I did. I definitely was definitely me.
1: Baby consent educator. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That was definitely me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Also, <laughs> Nobody else.
1: <laughs> that also reminds me that when I was in ninth grade, there was this guy. I, I remember his name, but I won't say his name on our podcast. Um, You're so who, kind. <laughs> <laughs> I like very distinctly remember him because he was such a pest. And he's someone who I went to elementary school with. I don't remember if he was in my middle school, but he was in my high school. And he kept either like doing like the snapping of bra strings thing or like mm. like trying to like grab my best friend. And I remember I like shoved him against the wall and I like kicked him in the shins and I was just like, no. She said no. And I got called a bitch.
0: Of course but you did.
1: I I was just like, I'm the bitch. Like you're being a little bitch right now for like not respecting someone's boundaries. That's what a real bitch is. <laughs> so
0: you got called a bitch by other dudes. How'd the girls react?
1: Um, I mean, I definitely had a reputation for like being a feminist in high school. Like I started a feminist club in my junior year. Um But I also feel like a part of that reputation, I don't know, like, how much this was, like, the guys or how much this was sort of, like, a joint uh, agreement of, like, what it means to be a feminist. But I was also, like, widely rumored to be a lesbian, Mm, like, many, many years before I came out or even knew that about (laughs) myself. Um, Yeah, but I I don't – I think most of the the girls that I was friends with in high school were also pretty – like, they were less – physically aggressive than I was about like defending boundaries, but they were also just like, what the hell? Like, why are boys like this?
0: Yeah. You know, what's funny is that like, I was so good at taking care of everybody else, mm-hmm. but not taking care of myself, mm-hmm. which I think is like basically something every therapist has to struggle with. Yes. You know, just the reality that we are we're stronger for other people more than we are for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I remember distinctly um, one of the boys that eventually assaulted me in mm-hmm. high school uh, was at a party and he had grabbed my friend's breasts like really hard. And she was really upset at a party. And then everybody was like trying to grab at her. And I like came after him. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was fascinating was that my friend stopped talking to me. Wow. She was mad at me. She's like, what are you doing? I'm not like you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you were crying because he was hurting you. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, it's okay. We're at a party. Everybody's just doing stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me really think of how deeply that is internalized. Yeah. Yeah. Which you know
1: part that her, two, part yeah, two of our series. That is part two of our <laughs> series, but
0: how deeply you know she held on to this idea that her body was like par for the course. You know. Yeah,
1: and also the the thing that we do to ourselves when we experience harm and trauma and pain and feel this pressure to turn it into this was fun. Like I right. th- I was having fun.
0: Right. Because I got all the attention, which mm-hmm. is what girls are supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Right. Do what you can to get attention. Even if that means that you're getting harassed, mm-hmm. you still love it. You love it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think we, we need to define patriarchy and toxic masculinity as opposed to masculinity in general. Yes. Not all masculinity is toxic. Yes. We're going to talk about that.
1: All right. So what is your definition of patriarchy?
0: So it's really hard for me to separate the idea of patriarchy um from, you know, just like a general hierarchical system. Mm-hmm. Not to say that a matriarchy would be better. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know because mm-hmm. I've never lived in one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a patriarchy is a hierarchy that puts men atop that hierarchy.
1: Mm-hmm. Um and makes specifically it, like cisgender, heterosexual yes. white men.
0: Yes. And and the things that are that are inherent in that is that there are very strict rules for people to live in that hierarchy. So men are also being controlled and oppressed within that system, Mm -hmm. but they just get a lot of privilege when they, when they succeed in that system. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get paid better and they're not necessarily going to face consequences Mm -hmm. the same way that a woman or a person of color, specifically in our patriarchy,
1: Mm Um, I think like a really yeah. succinct. Uh, I don't know if our listeners can hear this, but dog is howling upstairs, and yeah. I feel really bad. But it's okay. Anyway, um, back on topic, the a really like succinct illustration of that happened really recently. So we're recording right now in August. Uh, I saw of a post 2019. Of 2019, I saw a post that uh, put Sentoya Brown, um, who was. Uh, 16 years old when she was sex trafficked and sold to a pedophile and she shot her uh, abuser and went to jail for 16 years and just recently got out. Um, She's, what is it called? She's not like totally free. Like she's still. No, she's like on probation. Yeah. Which. For like the next 10 years.
0: Which doesn't make sense because she's a perfect victim in all yeah, of this.
1: Except for being not white. You know, right. she's a black woman um but she spent from the time she was 16 to 32 she was in prison and then uh the the post that i saw had her photo and and like very briefly explained her and like what was going on with her uh and right next to it was brock turner who served three months of a six-month sentence for sexually assaulting an unconscious woman
0: and he was like caught in the act so it wasn't like there was a question of whether he did it yeah right and what's interesting is that afterwards He still has a future as a swimmer. Mm -hmm. And And as a speaker about the dangers of alcohol. Yeah. And you know what's really, like, frustrating for me is that in his posts, he speaks about how he's still a success before her. Mm -hmm. Like, the woman that he made a choice to assault violated him. Mm -hmm. And how many people support that narrative. Mm -hmm. That's that's just mind-blowing to me. Um, and the, and Brock Turner is a very real um, example of toxic masculinity and how embedded that is in our institutions,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? How we how we treat men like they have no control over their libidinous drives mm-hmm. and they're like primal animals. Mm-hmm. And yet we give them all the control over our countries yeah. and and like basically everything else. Like if men can't control their libidinous drives or any of their other drives, why the fuck are they judges and presidents mm-hmm. and leaders? Mm-hmm.
1: Like But it's that double standard of, you know, if you get assaulted it's because men can't control their their actions. And yet, you know, when you think about uh, cis women's sexuality and how it's been positioned and specifically like women of color and black women, the sort of like hypersexualization. Yeah. So it's like, how, how do we do both of those things at the same time? How do we think both of those thoughts at the same time? And like that kind of cognitive dissonance of just like men's sexuality is out of control therefore women need to contain themselves to control it and yet women are uncontrollable and dangerous and hysterical and crazy
0: <laughs> right and this and this also really brings attention to the madonna horde dichotomy
2: mm-hmm.
0: right that you know and and it's even in our music right lady in the street but a freak in the bed mm-hmm. right we need to be right? We need to be everything and and nothing at Mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. Like you, we can't be polar opposites Mm -hmm. for you. And the, and again, like in the next episode, we're going to be talking about the cool girl Mm -hmm. and what it means for women to have to navigate this like tiny narrow expression that Mm -hmm. is allotted for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and how that hurts our ability
1: to succeed Mm -hmm. and how that creates a glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so we're talking yeah. a little bit right now about how patriarchy hurts non-men. Yes. Um, but I think the focus of this episode, and it's so easy to do that, and I always want to talk about that because I'm true. always navigating it, but I think it's also important, at least in, in this episode, to... Really discuss also how patriarchy and, and toxic masculinity hurts men, and why men really need to get on board with intersectional feminism for their own good and the good of the the people that they love. Um, yeah, you have this bell
0: hooks quote yes. that that you brought up. I would yes. really love it if you. Uh, I think that. this
1: really encapsulates why. Well, I'm just going to read the quote. Okay, so Bell Hooks writes in um, The Will to Change, the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his Um, self-esteem. And when we think about... Yeah, just like letting that quote sink in and think about how much toxic masculinity and patriarchy is uh, like intra-psychic act of violence that men need to do to themselves in order to stay safe from other men. Yeah. Um, and and it's cutting yourself off from your emotional life, cutting yourself off from vulnerability, unmanly emotions like fear and sadness. I think the only um, approved of emotion in in men is anger. Yeah. And violence and rage. And And
0: sadness is only permitted in very specific extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that like when a soldier cries over his friend. Yeah. Right. So he's already in a militarized space. Mm -hmm. And so he's already like he's proven his masculinity Mm -hmm. by being a soldier and Mm -hmm. therefore he's allowed to cry. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like the imagery of that or like when when they express joy, like full joy again. When do we see the most expression of joy in men? Is like soldiers who come back and their mm-hmm. dogs come to them, mm-hmm. right? Again, you have to have this hyper-masculinity can only be juxtaposed to these big emotions mm-hmm. when you have expressed that masculinity in yeah. the first place. Like you can't just be like any regular dude who's expressing joy because then you're a lesser man.
1: Yeah, And I think... I mean, in both of our therapeutic work in in sex therapy and sex education, even in therapeutic work that I'm doing that is not necessarily focused on sexuality, it just makes me think of the idea of authenticity. Like One Mm of my core values as a therapist is helping my clients really embody their authenticity um, outside of whatever social scripts or social norms they're being given. And so when you think of this this first initial act that, like, we talked about understanding patriarchy from the time we were three years old, right? Yeah. So when you think of, like, boys don't cry or something like that, you know, it's-, it's And uh, boys will be boys. And boys will be boys. And, like, you know, taking what is yours as part of your understanding of yourself as a person from the time you're a child, um, how, how much of that is cutting- men off from their authenticity, from the fullness of who they are. Absolutely. Um, this makes me think of some of
0: my clients and even partners who've had like such an idea of what it meant to be real men mm-hmm. that they couldn't really express love and care that was true to them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the experiences that I recall was a man who was recently divorced mm-hmm. and he had this idea that to be a husband, he must, you know, happy wife, happy life. Mm-hmm. So he needed to do everything to make his wife happy. Now, she had her own script. And so anytime he accommodated her, she stepped into that and mm-hmm. kept taking up more of his space. Mm-hmm. And he kept giving more of himself. Mm-hmm. And he lost himself along the way. And by the time we met, he was, like, completely incapable of you know having an orgasm mm-hmm. or you know experiencing joy he lost his passion for what he was learning and studying mm-hmm. because he lost himself in this script
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he couldn't separate himself mm-hmm. from that script he hung on to it for a long time and he missed opportunities for mm-hmm. success because of that mm-hmm. because he was so he was so attached to what he should have been instead Mm -hmm. of who he was. Mm -hmm. And that created so much resentment in the marriage Mm -hmm. because when they met, he was a full human being Mm -hmm. and then he disappeared Mm -hmm. and she didn't like, she didn't find him attractive Mm -hmm. anymore Mm -hmm. and he didn't find himself attractive anymore. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because his body had changed so much. It was Mm -hmm. really because he wasn't himself Mm -hmm. um, and he had lost that and he was one of my more impactful experiences mm-hmm. in the work that we do mm-hmm. because i resonated with that myself mm-hmm. right i saw how much of myself i had to give up to be perceived as acceptable mm-hmm. and accommodate mm-hmm. everybody else's wants and needs and how much that that took away from me and mm-hmm. i'm really fortunate to be in my 30s and have discovered it
2: yeah
0: right and and so and own myself yeah And so seeing that work meant that he meant that he needed to express himself in ways that he didn't know that he could.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. And so that meant adding some color into his wardrobe and painting his nails and trying different things just for the sake of trying it.
1: Yeah. I think something really complicated happens in heterosexual partnerships that it's just like, like the idea. The the stress and the pressure to be a provider to, of money and stability, and also like sexually, like a provider of orgasm, as a reflection of your, um, your like role, your role and your yeah. okay, your um skill as a lover, as a reflection of your own self worth, you know but the the impact of that is that that also there's like this this simultaneous thing that happens where like our gender roles are interacting and the gender role of being the provider and being the masculine person and and you know doing all of these things requires the the role of like the stereotypical feminine of being the one who is provided for rather than being mm-hmm. an active participant in your own life and an active participant in the household and then it becomes really hard for empathy to exist i think that's like part of our role as therapists is being able to to hold both of those things and be like you are both hurting you know you are both not being fully yourselves right and and i think because and my experience as someone who is femme presenting and who is socialized feminine like it's it's hard for me even personally to remember that men and masculine folks need that empathy too because I feel like for me I walk around with all of this pain and all of this trauma that I it's such hard work for me to be like or to not be like oh yeah like you you tie up your self-worth and my orgasms, but I'm faking my orgasms and feeling traumatized by the sex that we're having. Like how right. can I hold both truths and have that empathy and also assert myself? Right.
0: It's and it's also hard as like re- like a person to receive that information mm-hmm. because even if it's like not intentional at all, like they're not trying to harm you. Mm-hmm. They've been socialized in the same way that you have. Mm-hmm. And so we're constantly playing around with like, is this me? Or is this what I was taught? Mm-hmm. And I think that that women today are a lot more socialized mm-hmm. and queer people in general are more socialized to ask that question. Mm-hmm. But cishet and especially white men yeah. really have no space to ask that question. Yeah. Um, I mean, now there are blogs, but you have to find them. We're going to talk about them. you have to want them. to find them.
1: Yes. You have to want to think that something is wrong. Yes. Yes.
0: And, it, and it's so much easier to just compromise things because it's, you know, like you get everything else. Mm-hmm. That makes me think a lot of white feminism as well, mm-hmm. right? Or like just white women who have sold out basically the entire country mm-hmm. voting in poor ways mm-hmm. for that, like that hurts them, mm-hmm. right? The idea that like, I'm acceptable enough, and I get enough from this, and it's just uncomfortable enough for me, so I'll tolerate it. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of white cis het men have that experience where mm-hmm. their lives are just not terrible enough mm-hmm. to ask the hard questions until it is.
1: Yeah, or or there's just you know like when you're so cut off from your emotional life that too. you can't even identify you know the depression is is not even identifiable you have no words for it because you are not in touch with that emotional side of yourself
0: right and and to the point where like the mildest discomfort feels massive mm-hmm. right like what what was it was it Margaret Atwood who said like men fear women laughing at them women fear losing their lives yeah. like being killed yeah Right. the uh, Just like the idea that women are constantly walking around with that fear mm-hmm. because men are taught that they can do that, mm-hmm. that they can get away with harming other people. Mm-hmm. But then they have to live with the legacy of being this person that mm-hmm. like anytime they walk in the street, they could potentially be s- somebody who's harmful to another person and they did nothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I listened to an episode of death, sex and money podcast recently. I can't remember which one it was, but there was this episode where a a cis man was saying that he'd been raised. I can't remember if he, I think he'd been raised by like a very feminist mom. And he, he described raising his voice at her once and seeing her get scared, but that was his mom. So, so witnessing that was a wound for him. And, and it, translated into like resentment of women's fear of men more generally and it was really hard for me to hear that it was really hard for me to not be like oh poor you yeah. you know and I it, I had to do so much work to get into this space of of being like what must it be like for a cis man to walk around knowing that he is being perceived as a violent threat to the people around him yeah
0: um i kind of the closest thing that i could really relate to when it comes to that is the fact that i have white privilege Mm -hmm. and so i know that when i walk around in the world like especially if i get like a pumpkin flavored something right i'm (laughs) gonna get like you know laughed at in that way but at the same time i'm just like okay i understand that i live in this world and i've received this privilege and I may not be seen as a safe person Mm -hmm. to people of color, Mm -hmm. and I need to recognize that and own that and show it to the people who are willing to get to know me Mm -hmm. that I'm doing the best that I can to provide that space Mm -hmm. for them and that safety for them. And I cannot resent people for having their lived experiences projected onto me. Mm -hmm. I can't um at the same time i just don't see myself being as kind to white mm-hmm. cishet men mm-hmm. about that but i am working on that as well
1: well i think i think okay. a part of it too comes from like having a sense of humor i think yes. that's a big part of it because in in toxic masculinity there is this sense of rigidity and this sense of like yes. you you have to take yourself seriously because of all of these responsibilities and if you can't access that place of of self-awareness and humor you know, like with the pumpkin spice latte or yeah. whatever, you know, like, and just being like, yeah, like I can, I can, uh, inhabit this space of like being the Becky who has the pumpkin spice latte yeah. and be like, if that's what this person needs to like create a, a, a loosening of that tension and, and a space for safety and like humor and creativity to emerge, like that is an okay thing to happen. Yeah. And I think with masculinity, that's masculinity, toxic masculinity is like diametrically opposed to that loosening of yeah of rigidity
0: yeah and and again it's also because in one hand yeah absolutely and I just have to say I'm like really happy my name's not Rebecca or (laughs) any version of Becky um because it's close to Rachel like it's close um but at the same time the thing that that men are are carrying is not pumpkin spice latte and right. basic bitch stuff right. the stuff that they're carrying is rapist mm-hmm. colonizer mm-hmm. it's you know assaulter mm-hmm. um it's the destruction of our society yeah right it's it's so much heavier um but at the same time you're right there is a space for humor in that mm-hmm. um and i have seen some comedians like pull that off mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to see
1: more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when it comes to like heterosexual men too, this idea of like sexual rejection. Oh yeah. You know, really attacks the idea of what masculinity should be. You oh know? yeah. So so you're if you're walking around and you are being perceived as a threat by the same people who you who you want to have emotional connection with, who you want to have sexual connection with, you know. And, and the way that we are never taught to handle rejection, anyone, mm. but specifically the way that rejection makes you less of a man. Oh, yeah. You know, like, there's just so much there. Yeah. Um, and, and it also
0: goes along with, like, the whole pickup artist culture mm-hmm. as well, right? They tell you, like, their objects, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That the, the specifically women that you're trying to have sex with their objects. So these are the ways that you get objects to mm-hmm. notice you, mm-hmm. right? You peacock, mm-hmm. you neg, you stay as far away from your natural self mm-hmm. as you can mm-hmm. in order to just reach this goal of fucking one of your objects. Mm-hmm. Not once is there an acknowledgement that these are individuals, and they mm-hmm. deserve to be seen for who they are. Mm-hmm.
1: And it goes so and they also well. Might right. desire right. who you are, right? Not not whatever whatever fantasy you are putting out there. So this this kind of leads right into our next question: with how do, how does toxic masculinity and and the scripts that men are instructed to adhere to, um, like impact relationships between? Men and women. And this, of course, is very, very like cis focused, very heterosexually focused. Um, but I think one of the things that I learn about continuously as a stripper is is how does fantasy and projection work? Which ways am I, or under what circumstances am I willing to comply with mm. someone's fantasy of me? And it's only ever When I'm getting paid, but it has shown up in my personal life and my romantic relationships with cis straight men, and it's very discouraging. I feel very disillusioned because it doesn't show up right away, you know, there's so much of like new relationship energy that is kind of like, you're not really operating with your full brain or you're not really rose colored glasses situation. And then when they come off and you realize like you, I've been doing so much reviewing of my previous relationships, specifically with cis straight men and white men and feeling like, where was I in this relationship? Was I ever there? Were you ever seeing me, Mm. you know, and were you ever showing me you? Right. And also like, when you noticed that
0: I was anything other than what your fantasy of me was, what kept you interested mm-hmm. in keeping this alive,
1: or like it when you never. saw who I really am, did you just bounce? Yeah, now that's hurtful, yeah.
0: Um, I'll never forget when an ex of mine was like, "You were just so cool and secure in yourself." So I basically decided that I love you. And that I wanted you. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter that you wanted and needed all of these other things Mm -hmm. because I just wanted you. So it's like, wait, let's clarify this. You wanted to possess me. Mm -hmm. You wanted to own me Mm -hmm. and have me in a very specific way in your life, Mm -hmm. regardless of my wants and needs, because Mm -hmm. you still never saw me as a human being.
1: Yeah, and no one is cool and self-possessed all the time. Right. You know? And I wasn't cool and self-possessed.
0: <laughs> I was just like very myself yeah. because I was already engaging in my career and everything that was important to me. yeah. And that was just like, that was just cool in and of itself and enough to just want to own and be part of instead of, instead of him looking at himself and saying how can i have that for me mm-hmm. and being inspired by my myself ownership
2: mm-hmm.
0: he just wanted to own me yeah right and and that was that was a really hard reality for me it, and it was also really difficult for me to like look back and say how the fuck did i miss that yeah, yeah. right and it was just such a natural thing yeah you know, for, for both of us to do right. Like to be possessed and to possess
1: just yeah. so just like passing two ships, passing in the yes. night, like we're both on our own course. We're both in our own gender identities and the wants and needs of those gender identities. If you're not really conscious about how you're engaging with them, you just yeah, never like, yeah, you just let it happen. And yeah. All right. So I think we're going to take a break here. Um, we're going to try to expand in the next section of this episode talking about patriarchy and toxic masculinity in a less cis-heterosexual frame. Oh, yeah. That's going to be fun.
0: <laughs> Hello, friends. Rachel here. You're listening to season one of Sex Essential You, the school of sexistentialism. Sex we hope you're enjoying the show. You may have noticed that we are using a different name for our podcast. After some market research, we have concluded that Sexistential You is a more accurate title for our show than Sexistential Crisis Podcast. I appreciate your understanding. If you like what you're hearing, consider finding us on Patreon. We have a bunch of exciting tiers for patrons, including polls and surveys for future content, exclusive access to minisodes, shout outs on the show, and even private consultations with me and Janice. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at sexessential.u. Now, back to the show.
1: Hey everyone, we're back with episode 5 of Sexistential Crisis Podcast, and our topic today is patriarchy and toxic masculinity. In the first half of our episode, we talked a lot about relationships between cishet men and cishet women, but uh, patriarchy doesn't only affect straight people or cis people. So, uh, I guess the way that we're launching into this part of the episode is how does patriarchy and toxic masculinity impact men in their reactions with other men? And we're talking about cis men. We're talking about trans men. We're talking about straight men. We're talking about queer men. You know, how, how does this dynamic impact all of these relationships?
0: Yeah. So one of the more interesting therapists that I worked with, whose name is um, Eric Schneider, Mm -hmm. he focused on masculinity and gay relationships. Mm -hmm. And he was seeing how toxic masculinity was really a big part of what was straining these relationships Mm -hmm. that, um, first is especially with the introduction of marriage equality, Mm -hmm. they started gendering themselves Mm -hmm. in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. Whereas like you used to see like two, you know, two mask dudes together and it wouldn't have been an issue. Mm -hmm. Or you would have seen like more like femme dudes together and it wouldn't have been an issue. Now you're going to see dudes that like, they may not be mask or femme Mm -hmm. in in any, like, particular extreme way, Mm -hmm. but by the time they get together and even get married, Mm -hmm. one of them tends to take on that role Mm -hmm. of the
1: femme, and Mm -hmm. one takes on the role of the mask. Mm -hmm. And The pull of heteronormativity is so strong. Yes. it's, It's a part of toxic masculinity. And
0: here was what really fucked me up the way that was determined was based on who was earning more Mm -hmm. ended up being the more mask presenting Mm -hmm. like partner Mm -hmm. taking on the more mask roles, Mm -hmm. which meant that if children were entering the picture, Mm -hmm. the one who earned the least took on all the caretaking roles, Mm -hmm. whether that was suitable for that partner or not, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just like freaking mind blowing. I was like, wow, look how deeply this runs.
1: Yeah. That, that actually reflects something, uh, I in like my own personal history where I was in one of my first relationships with a woman and she was older than me and made a lot more money than me. And I am very femme. I, I like a lot of the femme things. I'm not so much in touch with like I identify fairly recently as sort of gender neutral. You know, my, my gender is I prefer not to gender. Um but at that point, I, you know, that was before I kind of realized that about myself or found ways to like put words to that and embody that. And she would take me out on these fancy dates. And I was like very into the sort of like sugar mama dynamic of that relationship. But it was interesting to me that like when we would stay in, I would be the one doing the cooking and like, you know, she would like provide all this very fancy like food, like for me to, to work with, but I would be the one doing the cooking. I think I even like you know, and I was having a little bit of fun with it with like wearing the apron and like, and I've done that it, with, right. uh, with male partners too, where I, I really like playing with the 1950s housewife aesthetic. Um, but when I notice that that is not just an aesthetic that I'm playing with in my relationships, but it actually becomes something that we are right. seriously engaging there with. There was no safe word out of that scene. Yeah, Yeah. And yeah. And I, you know, she was like, you know, not, not like butch in any sort of uh, stereotypical way, but she was definitely the more butch one in the relationship. And we very naturally fell into that. And it's something that I hear my queer clients say too, where, you know, and not, not even necessarily like a two cis women, but like, you know, I have some gender queer clients and, and it's a struggle They, they, they really struggle to resist heteronormativity in what yeah. is already a not heteronormative relationship.
0: Yeah, I I actually saw a very interesting um, client case where they started out as a lesbian relationship and then one of them recognize that he's a man Mm -hmm. and when he went through transition that he really passed Mm -hmm. and they looked really hetero and this was like really fucking up the girlfriend she Mm -hmm. was just like no it took me so long Mm -hmm. to to acknowledge my my lesbianism so like this was really hard but what was hard for him was that the testosterone that he was taking felt so right for Mm -hmm, him. mm -hmm. And, and when he had his breast removal, he just felt like himself more than he ever was. But he also struggled with how to be a man Mm -hmm. in, in the world because he just didn't, he didn't connect to the concepts of masculinity that were around him. And he also worked in a very like, bro-y environment Mm -hmm. and so it was just so hard for him to relate to the other men Mm -hmm. you know and anytime he you know he was so self-conscious about like when they would go out for beers and he would like order a cocktail Mm -hmm. and you know they would all look at him and he'd be like what you know Mm -hmm. he couldn't understand why they were just looking at him in this way he's like I just I don't like the taste of beer and Mm -hmm. it just like and they would suggest that he was less of a man and mm-hmm. they didn't know that he had transitions. Mm-hmm. So they thought he was cis mm-hmm. and how much that hurt him, that like his masculinity was tied to his choice of drink.
1: Yeah. That really illustrates for me the way that I think toxic masculinity functions for people, all people of all genders. And it's, it's the idea of like not allowing yourself pleasure.
0: Oh, right. Yes, like not sh- allowing sh-
1: yourself the pleasure of authentically being who you are. Right. Because then you won't measure up to the standard. Um, how do you think toxic masculinity impacts friendships between men? Oh, you know, I,
0: I'll never forget this. There was a documentary, uh, created by Dr. Robert Heasley, who was one of the first researchers on men and masculinity. And he, um, I'm sorry, this is a moment that I need to sit with because it was adorable. Um, We have our dogs here and one of the dogs is sitting on my couch and Janice was like, I got you, girl. I know what you're doing. So (laughs) that was just a really fun moment for me and I couldn't not laugh. Um,
1: So the documentary. So uh,
0: Dr. Robert Heasley, you know, showed boys who, you know, were rejecting the you know the the scripts of male friendship and they would nap together and hold each other mm-hmm. and share secrets with one another and they had these loving fulfilling relationships and what i thought was interesting is that they tried to have sex with each other. And they were like, no, turns out we're not gay. We just really love each other in this really intimate, sensual, loving way. Yeah. And they had to like challenge these norms, but first they questioned their sexuality yeah. because they're taught that straight boys don't do this. No tenderness. There was no, yeah, they weren't allowed to have tenderness and they had to combat you know the other messages from boys at school mm-hmm. saying like that they're not gay and mm-hmm. they and they are like no we tried this mm-hmm. you know and like
1: yeah and i think two things that come up for me as you're describing this are that we are talking from a very western perspective yes ones. absolutely and um because i i i mean like this was like back in my tumblr days but i remember seeing these posts going around about you know, like men of color, like walking arm in arm. And I don't remember where in the world they were from, but I remember it making like a very big impact on me and like landing in this very sort of like squishy part of me and just almost grieving for for the men in my life who who can't walk arm in arm with their friends. You yes. Know? And then I also, it reminds me, I was doing like a gender and sexuality workshop at the CLPP. I can't remember what it stands for, um, but it was like a reproductive rights uh, workshop. And there was this one artist who was sort of like deconstructing black men's masculinity or just black masculinity, like cis or trans, um, by taking photos of black men and really emphasizing softness and tenderness, tenderness. and weaving oh. flowers into their hair and allowing for all of these bright colors and and how poignant that was especially because like we we're, we're talking about toxic masculinity and we talk about this hierarchy that white supremacy plays such a huge role in and for men of color you know specifically black men but also like latinx men the idea of masculinity and violence and and sexual violence and and this sort of like monstrous masculinity is even more emphasized absolutely i mean you have
0: the whole like mendingo trope
2: mm-hmm.
0: right where not only are they these big monstrous muscular men who are physically capable of doing everything and mm-hmm. therefore must be controlled because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what colonization does it controls the resources and powers of others um but they're also like like sexual bulls right mm-hmm. like and and really identified and discussed that way as if they are kettle
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and and how damaging that has been mm-hmm. to black male sexuality um a professor trevor milton wrote about black masculinity mm-hmm. from that perspective um i think you could find his article somewhere online and mm-hmm. we could probably link it in our show notes yeah um and he speaks a lot about how you know black masculinity um was robbed of the tenderness and the love that, that was so a part of black culture Mm -hmm. and especially how, how black people in general needed to connect to one another during times of higher oppressive experiences, like Mm -hmm. more overt violence Mm -hmm. um, that had existed and how as, as the violence became more subtle Mm -hmm. and microaggressive, black men needed to be more um, cold mm. to one another and were not allowed to express that love for one another. Mm. And I thought that was a very
1: fascinating observation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because it really speaks to the ways in which adapting to the demands of toxic masculinity is adaptive. It is a coping right. mechanism. And I think that's what bell hooks gets into, you know, in the quote from the beginning of our episode where it's like, you know, we are all steeped in this culture and the ways that we adapt to it are because we need to survive. Right.
0: Yeah, and I really love how Adrienne Marie Brown, and you know, who wrote Pleasure Activism, talks about that. Mm-hmm. She talks about how um, all of what she has done in her relationships, and she owns the harm that she caused, was due to the violence that she had experienced throughout mm-hmm. her life. Mm-hmm. And when we consider this like intrinsic violence in our culture mm-hmm. um, against men I can only I can only comprehend a small part of how that is weaved into their identities mm-hmm. into their sense of self that violence is who they are mm-hmm. and not what they do mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. right
0: yeah. And holding on to that it must be terrifying to think that you could just flip mm-hmm. at any moment just mm-hmm. something can just trigger violence in mm-hmm. you in such an intense way that's, that's a very scary thing to hold on to.
1: Yeah. And then it makes sense that, and, you know, our next topic within this larger topic is incels and, and men's rights activists. And I think, you know, what you're saying is, is sort of putting something into place for me in terms of, not that I, you know, want to excuse this like extreme of toxic masculinity in any way, but if you're thinking that you have this sort of inherent violence and that frightens you, then making that, someone else's problem, making that the problem of feminism, making that the yes. problem of women, of feminine people, you know, that they earn <laughs> that violence yes. because then it, it makes it not something that you need to work with, not something that you need to control, not something that you need to unpack or heal from. Right. It is something that you do in response to the existence of other people and they have earned it.
0: Yes, and again, understanding something is not an excuse to mm-hmm. like for it. So I can I can understand why somebody you know does something violent or mm-hmm. something horrible. That doesn't mean that I'm excusing them, mm-hmm. right? There is no excuse to violate another person. Mm-hmm. Um, you still did something wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You still did something that was a choice. Just because it came from a trigger does not change that. Mm -hmm. And so owning it and holding yourself accountable is how you can continue the healing process, Mm -hmm. not just for other people that you have harmed, Mm -hmm. but for yourself as well. Yeah. Right? And we all have our sins to bear because we all live in a society that taught us to hurt each other instead of love each other and care for one another. Yeah.
1: So do you want to tell me a little bit about the history of incels and men's rights activists? (laughs) Sure, sure. Okay, so incels, which used to be um,
0: in V-cells, right, which meant involuntary celibates, was actually created by a neo-feminist liberal queer woman named Alana from Canada. And she just created a space for where people who were lonely and just did not really connect well to their peers um, as far as like relationships are concerned. They just had a hard time Mm -hmm. and they felt like they couldn't have sex like everybody else because Mm -hmm. they just didn't know what to do. And they were just really lonely. She created a community online Mm -hmm. and she provided a lot of free emotional work in this space for about a decade. And then when she left, it kind of took its own turn and some of the some of the old school incels when it was still this supportive space had to leave because the ones that took over were a bunch of angry men. Mm. And the thing is is that when we really speak about patriarchy, right? So there was another term that's called karyarchy mm-hmm. which is identifying that like Patriarchy is like where men sit atop the hierarchy Mm -hmm. and kiriarchy speaks about race Mm -hmm. and class. Mm -hmm. Um, And then somebody said, you know, kiriarchy is redundant. Mm -hmm. Patriarchy, especially the way it's being expressed in this globalist society, Mm -hmm. you know, is inherently white, cis, het, male Mm -hmm. sitting atop the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just to understand how this works in incel spaces, Mm -hmm. You have a lot of racism embedded in that, mm-hmm. and so I don't even remember the names, but they basically have all different titles for the alpha male of different races. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to know, honestly. Uh, yeah, I'm sure i it's mean it's going to be horrific. I don't you want- <laughs> can you can do your own research into them. There are like several podcasts discussing this, so we don't have to go into that. But the incels and <laughs> the MRAs, you know, just like you said, to get back to your point, they are saying like evolutionarily men are like this and women are like this Mm -hmm. women belong scientifically true right which is not scientifically (laughs) true at all but you know we're holding on to we're holding on to old tropes Mm -hmm. of evolutionary science that have been uh, you know they have been not necessarily debunked because we can't really debunk it Mm -hmm. but they have been questioned Mm -hmm. and recognized as like
1: flimsy arguments Mm -hmm. right so not to say which to me is ironic when you think of like the sort of Toxic masculine virtue of rationality. Oh, yeah. Totally. And you're just like, but here we are in this completely irrational space using facts that are not facts about gender to organize a society in a way that is causing far more harm than good. Right. Right. And as long as they are sitting atop that hierarchy, mm-hmm. they are
0: fine with it. It's similar to white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? Like they don't want to get rid of people of color. They just want people of color to be in the service class. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how these men perceive women mm-hmm. and perceive races. There's white supremacy embedded inside the MRAs and the incels on the red pillars, mm-hmm. um, of which I find ironic also because the red pillars come from, you know, like the concept of the red pill comes from the major. Mm-hmm. But the Wachowskis created the mm-hmm. Matrix, and they and the whole series is about being trans yeah. and and the reality of like the construct of gender. Mm-hmm. So just like funny referencing there, but but that way. also
1: I mean that also kind of like very neatly aligns with or echoes the history of incels, where you know it was created as a space by a queer woman oh, to, totally to create connection and solidarity and community for this very specific experience. And that was turned on its head. Right. And it was also like, notice
0: how it turned on its head when she was like, I cannot provide this free labor anymore. Yep. Yep. Right. And so like when we speak about the MRAs, and so the incels and the MRAs are two different groups. There's a huge Venn diagram where they coexist with Mm -hmm. each other, but they're not all the same. And there are subtle differences. And you can do your research on that. I don't think that I have the authority to really go into the subtle differences but the mras are men's rights activists in the uk they call themselves meninists Mm. as opposed to feminists (laughs) right and they're basically there to counter the feminist movement saying that it is unnecessary especially in the western world Mm -hmm. where you don't have oppression and i'm like Mm -hmm. please yeah right like we just spoke about this Mm -hmm. right so we don't have to we don't have to counter that argument Mm -hmm. but there is one valuable thing that we have to address that Mm -hmm. the MRAs I think are angry about. They're just focusing it on the wrong place. Mm -hmm. They are focusing it on feminists, but feminists have been having this fight all along. We believe that men have been oppressed within this society as well, which is what we've been talking about the entire time. And we see that you have hardcore feminists that really began their careers fighting for men's rights yep. men's social justice so who are the ones that are fighting for male contraception that's not just condoms mm-hmm. feminists mm-hmm. who are the ones that you know fought for men's custody rights and gender equality for men when it comes to custody Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm-hmm. was the first one to bring that into into attention mm-hmm. and it has been women not just feminists, but women, who had created men's domestic violence shelters. Mm-hmm.
1: Knowing and that, that just brings it back to yes. Bell Hooks being like, this, there is harm here.
0: You right. Know? And like,
1: as, as a, I don't know if Bell Hooks identified as a feminist or a womanist, but as, you know, just being like, there is harm here, there is harm, we are acknowledging that there is harm being done to men under patriarchy too.
0: Yes. And like, let's also consider the trope of men being incapable of controlling their bodies and their anger and their libido is the reason that men can't be teachers and work mm-hmm. with kids. It's the reason that when they're nurses and and taking on nurturing roles, mm-hmm. they are like mistreated. And I, and we see this in our media all the time, like in, in the movie Meet the Fockers, mm-hmm. you know, you see how how, uh, Ben Stiller's character, who's a nurse is constantly being emasculated. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about him, which we now understand is that he was like, I don't see this as a joke. I don't see like, that's not a threat. You can make fun of me all you want, but Mm -hmm. I own what I do. And later to learn that his mother is a sex therapist Mm -hmm. totally makes sense in that
1: grand scheme. But it reminds me of something that, um, so I'm reading my mother myself right now, which Mm. is, pretty dated, um, very binary. But there was one passage where the author was talking about childcare and how, yes. you know, I, I posted this on one of my Instagram stories, but I really was um, struck by this passage where she was talking about childcare and she was talking about like when we understand childcare, you know, the the fact that women were getting custody of children full stop is a function of patriarchy too. Yes. Not, not just saying that, men cannot be nurturers, men cannot be caregivers, men cannot be good parents, but also saying that women by nature are all of those things. Mm. And what this writer said uh, in My Mother Myself, she was like, you know, it's not about gender. People of all genders, she didn't say all genders, but like she she was in the binary, but people of all genders, the the qualification for parenting is just wanting to take care of like small sticky creatures (laughs) and like, you know, like wanting that and liking to do that yes and anyone can want and like to do that and anyone can also not want to do that right and it doesn't come down to what your gender is
0: absolutely and I think about myself as a parent you know like as as nurturing as I am and that's what makes me a good therapist I am not particularly maternal Mm -hmm. but you know who is my brother. Mm-hmm. My brother is incredibly maternal mm-hmm. and he was integral to my daughter's first years of life mm-hmm. because she felt that warmth from him mm-hmm. and and just that like I, I don't even know how to explain it. Mm-hmm. So I was great for her to ask the hard questions mm-hmm. and to nurture growth. But at the end of the day, when she just needed that like warmth and affection in a very specific way mm-hmm. my brother was that mm-hmm. for her
1: mm-hmm.
0: and gender really has nothing to do with this
1: yeah so we we're a couple minutes out from the end of this episode and i wanted to ask you where where can men go if they are interested in unpacking some of the ways that they've been harmed by patriarchy
0: all right so we have we have a few Spaces. So I just learned about the Instagram page, kiss and curse. Okay. okay. I like uh, the title already. <laughs> they're wonderful. Um, They are sex therapists and educators and they're like, we are here to listen to all of your struggles mm-hmm. of, you know, like you know, a gendered society, the violence that you have received, your fears, right? And I can only imagine the fears of like, now, you know, like we joke about it as feminists all the time. Like I can't even flirt with a woman Mm -hmm. without, you know, without the risk of being seen as a creep, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I get that. I, I understand that because we are living in a society where now everything is, is being, put under a microscope and Mm. exploited. Mm -hmm. And, and it can be because of the internet Mm -hmm. because of social media, but in the space of transformative justice, you know, kiss and curse is giving them a space to say Mm -hmm. all of this without the criticism Mm -hmm. and without making fun of like how silly it seems Mm -hmm. to be afraid of that stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, man.net who's our friend Dr. Alex Bovey, mm-hmm. um, who also studied men and masculinity under Dr. Robert Heasley. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did research on male metamors mm-hmm. in polyamorous relationships mm-hmm. and how they had to question mm-hmm. the standards of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And um and, really interesting. yes, fascinating work. And he presented at the alt-sex conference this year. Mm-hmm. Um Kevin Powell, who has mm-hmm. a very powerful TED Talk, and the Good Men Project. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Professor Trevor Milton, who's mm-hmm. a sociology professor at Queensborough Community College, mm-hmm. and he speaks a lot about Black masculinity and masculinity. Um, and they are just a few of the ones that that I have written down, but we can definitely find more and put them on our site notes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think just going back to what you were saying about Making, Because it is my, my uh, knee-jerk reaction, too, to make fun of men or to make fun of the concept of being like, oh, how can I even hit on a woman now? Because to me, it's like there's a difference between hitting on someone consensually and transgressing a me-too boundary, you know? Yeah. And at the same time, I think some of that scorn for me comes from a place of fear. And comes Absolutely. from a place of, like, weariness for what I've
0: endured. Right. And also the realization that, like, you don't know the difference between having a conversation and seeing me as a person and seeing me as an object
1: that you mm-hmm. can violate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you don't know how to navigate that, and that makes you scary to me. hmm Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and it's it sometimes becomes work that I am too tired to do. To yes. to hold space for both of those things. Yes. Yes,
0: absolutely. And, you know, it. it's so interesting because I'm able to do that in the therapy space. Yes. Um, and I do it well and I navigate it very well. Um, but, you know, in real life, I just don't have any more of that. Mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. like, unless you're paying me, I'm not doing this shit for you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I just can't. I yeah. can't because this is my life. Um, This is my actual safety. Yeah. Right? We don't have the therapeutic boundary. Um, I do want to ask the audience a question. Yes. Um, we want to know about some patriarchal truths that you're holding on to. Um, and what purpose does it serve in your life?
2: Yeah.
0: Right? Like, there's a function to holding on to these things and and seriously without any judgment mm-hmm. because it's natural to hold on to the things that you've been inundated with. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you holding on to mm-hmm. and, and how's it serving you?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. And, um, listeners can write into us at sexistential.crisis.pod at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Instagram at sexessential.crisis.pod. And we would love to to hear some of your feedback and start having that conversation with you. Thank you very much for
0: listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sexistential You, the school of sexistentialism. Would you like to contribute to a future episode? Have a burning sexuality question that you just need answered? Or want to have a voice message featured? Reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at sexistential.you or email us at sexistential.you at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Till next time.